Dear wine lovers, if you're interested in not just drinking wine, but also in investing in it, then this is the perfect podcast for you. Together with our guests, we will go into the depth of this upcoming and fast-growing asset class. Every couple of weeks, we will discuss a specific topic, so you get interesting insights about how, where and why to buy wine. Not just for getting heavenly great experiences by drinking, but as well to make some profit. We are your hosts, Jerome Huber and Remo Di Marco. Enjoy the episode. For our third episode, we are pleased to have Jacob near David on our podcast. Jacob reached out to us as he stumbled upon our wine podcast on LinkedIn. Jacob founded Vino Ventures in 2020, which offers people a new vehicle to invest in wine. In parallel, he owns a winery in Israel, which is called Jezreel Winery. Thank you a lot for being our guest. And let's start off with our first question. How did you fall into the wine barrel, Jacob? <laughs> uh, well, it's a good place to be. I'm glad that I fell into the wine barrel. Really, from almost childhood, I was fascinated with wine. And being a high-tech entrepreneur based in Israel means that you travel around the world a lot because the local market is very small. So I uh, had the fortune of traveling to Europe a lot, traveling to Silicon Valley, which then gave me access to Napa Sonoma. And so really got exposed to a lot of wonderful wines all over the world from a relatively young age. So that kind of pulled me along as a wine enthusiast for quite some time. Well, nice. And you originally are from the US, right? And living now in Israel. Yeah, so I was born in New York, but uh, came to Israel when I was 11 years old with my family. And then for about uh, 10 years, was back and forth a lot between Israel and the U.S., but have been mainly in Israel since 1994, have been mainly in Israel. So most of my life here. Very nice. And then you decided to start your own winery. How did that decision come along? In Israel, there's a whole separate podcast we could do about the, the history of the Israeli yeah. wine industry. <laughs> a very long history in under a minute is that 2,000 years ago, Israel was a center of winemaking, exported wine all over the world. And for a whole variety of reasons, we took about a 1,600 year or more vacation from winemaking and only really got back into it in the 1880s. But for the first sort of 80 years after the initial renaissance of winemaking in Israel, we sadly made around a lot of really bad wine. And it was only in the 1980s, going into the 90s, that we really started to perfect the art of making fine wine. And you had boutique wineries starting to pop up. And I first thought of starting my own winery in 2001. And then there was a dot-com implosion and the tech implosion, and I had less money than I thought I did. So, <laughs> so I showed As many my, people, you're not the only one. <laughs> so I put my plans in a drawer. I still have physically the original business plan because I'd printed it out, a very nice uh, plan. And then in 2000, um, basically 2010, 2011, I started this discussion with somebody who I had met who had been who started studying winemaking. And then he did the worst thing you can to an entrepreneur, which is he said, you know, why do you keep just dreaming of a winery? Let's do it. And I can be the winemaker. 
he obviously had his own agenda to have a winery that he could be the winemaker. And so we jumped into it. We took the decision in 2011 uh, to be ready for the harvest in 2012. What I'd like to say is we're good, but we're not magicians. So we didn't plant vineyards and then within six months have already grapes to make wine with. We looked around for vineyards which were amenable to the kind of wines that we wanted to make. And uh, some of them we successfully negotiated to take over those vineyards and started making wine already from the harvest of 2012. From that point forward, I crossed the line from being a wine enthusiast to being a member of the wine industry, to being a a trusted member of the wine industry, which gives me a whole different insight and, as you say, carte blanche into the wine world, because now I can approach wineries all over the world as a fellow winemaker and a fellow vintner, and I get treated very differently, and we have very different conversations, because now I have the same issues and the same problems, the same challenges that wineries all over the world have. Obviously, there's a fun side of it, otherwise we wouldn't do this. So uh, also get to have fun with fellow winemakers from all over the world. But that really is what gave me the additional exposure to the issues in the wine industry, which led me to where I am today, which is not only my own winery, but having built up wine businesses outside of my own winery because I got exposed to the global wine industry, much the same as for the tech startup, you know, with an Israeli boutique winery, you can choose to try and sell only to the local population, which again is quite small, or you can be global. And once you're global, then you have to learn everything there is about moving wine around the world, the logistics, the supply chain, the American three-tier system. You know, post-Brexit, you have different regulations in the UK than you do in the EU. You literally have different labels that you have to make for England versus France. So just got exposed to everything there is in the global wine industry. Um, I mean, it's impressive to... Like to start as a wine enthusiast and then becoming a winemaker. I think it's a uh, Raymond, we were talking about it um, a lot, but we didn't made it so far. <laughs> uh, maybe <laughs> once we get there. But what would be interesting for people to know, like how shifted your impression for trading wine or like you more globally perspective you have now to like export, for example, your wines to the EU or to the US. How did winemaking in general influence your perspective as a well, wine, as you know, trading say, wine and uh, wine as a right, I'd say, Right. I'd say winemaking, not so much. Wine selling, what I always say is winemaking is a project of passion and soul and romance and love. Selling wine is a business. So in a business, you need to learn everything there is about the business side. And in the business side, I remember the first moment when I realized that somebody who was buying a bottle of my wine in New York for $60 and I was getting $18 for that bottle of wine, I said, wow, you know, where's the other $42 going? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Somebody's paying $60, gladly is paying $60 for a bottle of my wine, which made me very proud. 
but they didn't know I was only getting $18. And you could say the same thing about any consumer good, right? There's a supply chain, there's the people who produce it, there's the branding, there's all the people along the way, there might be distributors and retail and all of that. The difference is that in wine, particularly fine wine and all the wines that I think you you know, have talked about and will talk about on this podcast, you know, fine wines are wines that one, have a story to them, but two, where a lot has been invested in the making of the wine as well. And it's not very scalable. So what does that mean? That means that as a vintner, if I do my job really well, then I can increase my production to a certain point. But that's about it. It's not that I'm going to start pumping out millions of bottles because that will turn me into a different type of producer. So, and that's sort of, you know, systematic throughout, right, the, the wine, industry, wine industry. You know, if, if Chateau Margaux tomorrow morning puts their name on hundreds of thousands of cases a year, they will stop being Chateau Margaux. They'll lose all their brand value, but more importantly, they won't be able to control the quality the way they uh, do it today. So by remaining or by choosing to be within that class of boutique wineries around the world, you recognize that it's going to take me two to three years to make that bottle of wine, to get it into the hand of the consumer, whereas the winery is taking all the risk that entire time, all the financial risk that entire time, till it gets to the consumer and the consumer pays their money. Because the importer and the distributor uh, only going to do as close as they can to just-in-time ordering. I mean, they take some risk as well, but, but they'll only order as they need it, as they forecast their sales. And sometimes, and I'm not telling you know a big secret, sometimes in the industry, everybody is doing invoice plus 60 days, invoice plus 90 days, or sometimes even more, which means that I'm financing them even once they have my product. They haven't paid me. <laughs> they have my product, and I still have to wait three, four months to get paid. So that reality forces you to, as I said, get to know the economics of the wine industry really well and opens your eyes to seeing the inefficiencies in the global wine market the way it is today. Some parts because of regulation, some parts because of tradition, some parts simply because wine is a consumable asset that is very physical and is very limited and, again, in production, takes up shelf space. It's a very different type of product than even most other luxury items, right? If Birkin wants to make more bags, essentially at the press of a button, they can make more bags. Hmm. But yeah, talking about the leverage, you said it's not really there with wine. I mean, the one thing that the winery can do is heighten the price, right? That's how you leverage. Yes, you as the producer can raise the price. But, you know, that takes a while as well, right, to kind of fold in increases in price. Takes a while. You know, you can't do that at the drop of a hat either because people uh, know your prices and again, there's distribution and so on. And you have many different levers, right? If there are, is a restaurant that has your wine and they're pouring your wine by the glass and you had agreed on a certain price with them, 
you then get exposed to currency situations. So if you're a winemaker in France or in Italy, but then you're selling in dollars or you're selling in pounds and the, and the currencies start to move away from each other, but all of your expenses are in your, you know, let's call it home currency, you have to take that into account as well. I think there's so many business and economic issues that you have to deal with which have nothing to do with what you're supposed to be mm-hmm. spending most of your time on to make this wonderful wine, mm-hmm. which is the <laughs> crazy, yeah. which is the making of the wine. So and that pushed you into founding uh, Vino Ventures, uh, right? So that they really realized the inefficiencies and stuff, and that yeah, it's pushed. So yeah, I mean, two things happened. I started to dabble, just given my tech startup background. I started to dabble into, you know, how to bring positive disruption to the global wine market um, and still working on some initiatives and played around. I released one of the first wine series as an NFT. We tried to democratize wine futures, did a lot of different things over the past few years. But along the way, one of the ideas that we uh, had even a few years ago was to create a fund which would focus on short-term trading in wine, where we see price arbitrage, particularly geographic price arbitrage. So if we see a wine that's being sold in France or in Italy or in Switzerland or in London for one price, But in this case, the U.S. being sold for a very different price, if we feel that we can move that wine efficiently and liquidate it and sell it, then you can generate a nice return. And that was our theory of Vino Ventures, which is a short-term trading strategy, which differentiated us and continues to differentiate us from many of the funds or investment folk who talk about, you know, buying a wine and holding it for 10 years or 15 years. You know, I listened to obviously your first podcast and your conversation with Christian. And, you know, there's two issues. You know, one is obviously choosing the right wine that if you hold it for 10 years will continue to go up in price. And there's a fair number of wines where you could, nothing's ever guaranteed, but you can be somewhat sure that if you hold that wine for 10 years, it will go up in price. But then at the end of the 10 years, to actually enjoy your unrealized gains, you have to sell the wine. And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm a wine collector. I'm not a wine broker. You know, how do I, how do, how do I sell my wine? So there are a lot of people that will help you try and sell your wine. But then those people charge money for helping you do that. And... I experienced all this on a personal level because I had been buying wine from, you know, for myself and my own wine collecting and, again, playing around on all this stuff over the years and spoke to a bunch of friends who had experienced the same thing, which is for a whole variety of reasons, when they did want to enjoy those gains and they would bring their wines, for example, to an auction site, by the time they paid the fees of the auction site, they really didn't have much profit to speak of. And that's if you had enough wine for the auction site to pay attention to you. Nowadays, there's more auction sites, so it's a little bit better, and they're digital and operate 24-7. But, but even so, there's a barrier to do that as a collector slash investor, in, you know, an individual private collector investor. So we said, for people that want to enjoy the benefits of wine as an alternative asset, which, in, and it's one, you know, you guys already are preaching this, 
it's certainly one of the best, if not the best, performing alternative asset, uncorrelated to the financial markets for the most part, which continues to hold its value, whether it was in 2008 or more recently, you know, during kind of the initial COVID scares, wine continues to hold its value. If you're buying, again, you know, good wines that you can look back 50, 60, 70 years, these wines will hold their value. They're not going to drop. In and now, just to be more concrete about your investment strategy or, or selling strategy, I mean, you said that it's more short-term and that you buy the wines from, let's say, another country and then resell it to a third country. Am I correct? Yes, cross, cross-border. But also, in this situation, you have to sell it. Yes. I mean, how can you, or how does it work? If you can give an example, for example, uh, you take a wine and then tell exactly what, uh, how the process sure. is going. Sure. Again, and having been in the industry for 10 years now, I gained an awareness of all the different types of players, right, that there are, whether they be DTC, you know, direct-to-consumer channels, auction sites, wine brokers, private client brokers, people who buy for restaurant lists. You know, there's all different channels, if you will. And if you get to understand all of those channels, and their appetites and their sensitivities, you know, price sensitivities, then you gain an awareness of a liquidation strategy. You know, this is very similar to if you're buying large blocks of stock in a public company. If you try to sell all of that stock in one day, you might drive the price down. So you have to have a strategy, a selling strategy, whatever the asset class is that you're in. And in wine, even more so, you have to know the depth of each strategy and the sensitivity of each channel. So I'll give you a few examples. Let's say we take some classic champagnes, right? You also have to be aware of seasonality. So in the fourth quarter of the year, you'll have much stronger buying or selling, depending on your perspective, <laughs> than you do in the first quarter. So you have to kind of know when to buy and when to sell if you're trying to hit the you know, top price to demand, price top demand, which will equal top price. Then you say, okay, let me make sure that I bought a lot of champagne so that I can sell it in the fourth quarter because there's a seasonality to it. You know, very similar... If you're looking at whites versus reds, and you're looking at summer months versus winter months, and so on and so forth. And then you have to look at, okay, if I'm buying a classic Bordeaux, right? You know, the top names in Bordeaux. So those prices are extremely efficient prices because they're traded a lot. Those wines are traded a lot, and everyone kind of knows the prices of those wines. On the other hand, some of them, there are allocation issues. Because for a particular vintage, because wine is a consumable asset, you might have a particular vintage where there just isn't a lot of it left. <laughs> so, so if there's a restaurant or a group of restaurants that want to have a particular vintage, they will be prepared to pay more than they otherwise would or have to because they want to keep that vintage on their list. So you have to have at all times, a multifaceted sales strategy so that you're not beholden to any one channel 
and you understand kind of the appetite and the depth of all of those channels. And as a fund, we don't want to be pulled in the direction of becoming a wine distributor. What do I mean by that? Uh, you know, a wine distributor, whereas we see wine distributors as a channel for us, you know, as potentially buying wine from us. What we're doing is cutting away a lot of the other stops along the way that exist today and kind of keeping the flow. When I say we don't want to become a wine distributor, I mean that in two ways. We don't want to have to sell wine, right, that needs to be sold. What does that mean? My wine, I am very proud of my own wine. <laughs> um, hope you guys get a chance to enjoy it. We have, do have some distribution in Switzerland. My wine, I still need to sell. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We have developed over 10 years a nice following. You know, we're not, we're not yet, you know, a cult winery where people are, have to sign up years in advance to get allocation to our wine. When we produce our wine, we have to push. You know, we have to push for it to be sold. We got to, you know, elbow our way onto the shelves. We got to make sure that, you know, our importer in the States is continuing to do their job. We got to go to the States a few times a year and walk around with the salespeople, all that kind of stuff. So we really have to kind of be pushing our wine. Whereas the wines that we're buying for the fund are wines that, you know, if I put it on an auction site, I know it'll be taken. You know, there's a constant demand for them. Okay, so normally for you as a producer of wine and you're not so well known, you have to push into the market to get it sold. But I mean, you have a specific uh, strategy to be short-term oriented. And I think it would be really interesting. I mean, there are thousands of potential wines you can buy. Can you explain what wines you're looking for? I mean, there are so many prices in Europe, so many potential investment objects you have to find like interesting things how do right. you look out for it how do you find best prices how do you purchase them you have a look on on wine searcher or what's what the tools right. do you use to yeah. get just to concentrate on the buying side for one moment yeah so well you have to look at them together because you have to see the trade when you're buying the wine When we're buying the wine, we have to see the trade. So you mentioned Wine Searcher, for example. So Wine Searcher is an important in terms of data feed, in terms of seeing prices of wine. But if you are not knee deep in the wine industry, you might look at Wine Searcher and not really understand what you're seeing. What do I mean? There's usually a big range of prices when you look at wine searcher on a given wine. You say, why oh, is there such a big range? And you say, ah, because this one includes shipping and this one doesn't include shipping. This one, uh, it's like that and this one's it. And then I'll let you guys in on a little secret. Uh, it's going to be on the podcast. So it won't be such a secret anymore, but a little secret, <laughs> which is that, you know, sometimes there are people who advertise prices on uh, wine searcher yeah, yeah. who don't even have the wine. Yeah, we have stumbled upon it. Uh, um, actually, I'm getting angry at those producers and I've wrote to several of them <laughs> that they should stop with it because it's just it's just unfair because they just list the, the, the wine on the price, which is ridiculous, so that it comes top first. And then if you write them, they, they said, oh, I already sold it. <laughs> exactly. Classic, right. Classic bait and switch. So, you know, they're doing that 
for two reasons. One is bait and switch, is to get you to reach out to them and then they'll try and sell you something else. Or, this is what the better ones are doing, is they're getting you to call them and then they'll go find the wine. And they're doing that with wines that there is availability. So what does that mean? So let's say we take some wines, which I think everybody in the audience will know. So if we say Smith Haute Lafitte, so most vintages of Smith Haute Lafitte, uh, certainly in the modern era, uh, during the past 15 years, 20 years, uh, let's say 2004 and forward, you can find it. You know, if you say to me, I'd like a case of, you know, 2008 Smith Haute Lafitte, I, I can find it for you. If you say you want a case of 2018, I definitely can find it for you. So there's, because they may, it, first of all, they produce more uh, Smith Haute Lafitte than some of the other. Uh, Bordeaux, uh, but they, you know, still maintain a good brand name and good quality level, and they get, you know, good scores all the time and all that. But there just simply is more of it around. Whereas there are other producers that might have much more limited production, and they simply are just difficult to find. It could be that vintage is very difficult to find. It could be that wine in general. No matter the vintage is difficult to find, where there's much more pressure from an allocation point of view. So the people that will advertise a wine that they don't have might be doing it because they assume that on the wholesale market, they could find it in time to supply it to you. So that's, so you have to kind of know how to treat some of the data in Wine Searcher. That was just like a very easy example of knowing how to treat the data in Wine Searcher. On the other side of the equation, the wine world is full of a lot of unstructured data. So this is where my tech hat comes in which is you have the same wine might uh, be held from, let's say, uh, just take a 2005 vintage wine, let's say a Burgundy wine, might be held by 40 different brokers in, in Europe. We'll all have some different amounts of it. They all call it something slightly different. They all uh, promote it in their, usually the email list to people in the trade, they'll be promoting that wine. But they all call it something slightly different. So it's real unstructured data. You have to be able to program something to accept all that, you know, all those hundreds of emails that you get a day from all these different brokers who are saying, oh, I've got this, I've got that. Because if you're trying to see the trade, you need to really be able to see, okay, I can buy this wine from any one of these channels. I can buy this wine and I see that I could sell it in the U.S. market, you know, at this price, and if I could move it quickly enough, then I'm not really going to be at any risk. In other words, if I can move it within a period of weeks or months, then I'm not really going to be at any risk, and I'll be able to close the loop on that trade, you know, relatively, relatively quickly. So do you use a, a technology you develop on your own? I mean, when you mentioned you have, like, many inflows of prices and... Every, every... Yeah, so we developed uh, some technology of our own. Obviously, ChatGPT made it a little bit easier. We were already playing around with some AI engines, and then it just became easier with the release and the various releases of, of ChatGPT. But we were already doing it before that. Nothing's perfect, but it definitely helps in creating sort of a dashboard so that you kind of can see what's out there, similarly to what, what WineSearcher did on the sell side. And there are a few other data points out there, tools out there. Obviously, LiveX is one of the major ones, and they've done a great job over the past 20 years 
and kind of refining data as well around wine. So they're a very good benchmark as well. And they're a very good source, you know, relatively trusted source as well. But you can't rely just on LiveX because oftentimes you won't find what you're looking for or you won't find it at the price that you're looking for. Very nice, yeah. Okay, so you have like different sources you find information from. Like you use LiveX, you use uh, your own like kind of technology you know, to find like where to buy because like yeah you have like approximately two millions under management right so yeah um, so where are we today so we started off doing this for our own account and then seeing that it worked and then we opened up as a proper fund and we started to take money mainly from friends to manage their money through the fund and thank god it's all gone well over the past two years so now we have about two million u.s AUM we generated since inception about 27% return um, in 2022 it was 14.5% net return to LPs so the actual return was higher it's structured as a standard fund and because of the nature of what we're doing which again is different than a lot of other even wine funds we offer LPs a, a rolling 120 day notice period where they can liquidate their position. And the reason we're able to do that is because we're following a short-term trading strategy. If we were in a buy and hold and wait for 10 years, then obviously you'd have to lock people's money up. So we're not doing that. But that would mean like if you have an investment horizon about like six months or even less because you do like arbitrage trading, that means you have to buy approximately 4 million US dollars a year, yeah. that would mean you have to find a lot of uh, buying opportunities. Yes. <laughs> Is, are there enough yes. arbitrage opportunities, you would say, to invest and right. not like, think, push the price on right. your you own? Have to, you have to keep in mind, the secondary trading market, just in the US, I've studied it globally, but I know the US the best. I know it's in the podcast that you guys did already, that you released already, that I listened to, I know you talked a little bit about the Asian market as well. But I know the American market is the best. The secondary trading of fine wine in the American market is over $5 billion a year. So the opportunities are there. In other words, if, you know, five million, four or $5 million a year sounds like a lot, and it's really not. It's, a, it's barely a drop in the ocean of what's going on. And we see ourselves scaling up to probably something in the area of $40, $50 million a year. We think there's no issues that will be you know, presented there. However, if somebody said to me, like my friends in the hedge fund world, you know, here's $500 million or here's a billion dollars, I sadly would have to say no. <laughs> I couldn't buy and sell that much wine. But certainly into the tens of millions of dollars, it's not a problem. You have to remember the American market, one besides its size, is continuing to grow. It's one of the you know markets that continues to grow, particularly if you scrub away kind of uh, boxed wine and uh, you know the cheap wine, uh, bulk wine, and you focus more on the premium wine category. The premium wine category continues to grow. Crazy. And uh, what I wanted to ask before I forget it is, we talked about the buying opportunities, the buying side of your life cycle, and to whom specifically are you selling to? You mentioned before that you're selling to distributors. Right. 
Yeah, so you to selling to, to distributors, to restaurant groups, to, you know, there are restaurant groups in the States that might have 60, 70, 80 restaurants, to hotel chains, private collectors, uh, brokers who are buying for private collectors, and then auction sites. So there's a fair amount of auction sites in the U.S. Returns have been pretty good at auction sites, even taking into account that we have to pay the fees of the auction site, even taking that into account, the return. Yeah. And so you used to establish relationships or you just approach every time a new distributor, a new broker, or how does that work? No, I mean, that's one of the things of myself and my partners having kind of been in the industry now for quite some time. So my partners, uh, people who have been also for the same time period active in the wine industry, They got started also in around 2012, so same same time period. And they got they came the same uh, they were the same journey. They really enjoyed wine and decided to make it their <laughs> their profession. And they saw it from a different point of view, but very related point of view. So they, for example, started one of the leading wine storage and fulfillment centers in the Northeast in the United States. So they were kind of seeing what was kind of going through them. When I say fulfillment, meaning there's a lot of e-commerce sites and stuff like that that don't have their own back, you know, they don't have their own back office, they don't have their own logistics, so they'll rely on a third party. So they uh, operate as a third party fulfillment for a lot of uh, e-com, you know, wine uh, e-commerce sites and stuff like that. So they were seeing what was happening, right? They were seeing the demand and recognizing that demand combined with myself and another partner of ours who has a lot of connections in, in the French wine industry, we had a lot of strong connections on the European side, both producers, even some direct allocations from top producers to brokers, negociants, and then on the U.S. side, knowing the sales channels I mentioned before. And a very important piece as well is having real domain expertise in the logistics of moving wine cross-border and cross-continent and having all the licenses to do it you know, 100% legally is also important. Having all of that is what we needed to put together to launch the fund. Yeah, I think that would be the biggest hurdle for a normal wine guy to get into this short-term trading because there's a lot of cross-border, there's a lot of packaging, storage stuff, which it's really exceeding a normal people's possibilities, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, we had a rough period during the first part of last year when you still had shockwaves from COVID and there just simply were no boats. Yeah. There was no available space on boats. Yeah. Or if you did get your container onto a boat, it was waiting in a line at a port somewhere in the States to be offloaded. So... Many different issues. And then if you obviously say, oh, well, I'll just, you know, use air shipping. Yeah. Well, that's prohibitively expensive with wine mm -hmm. to try and ship it. by. So, you know, to ship a pallet of wine by air is like whatever. You might as well open up a winery and wherever you're trying to ship the wine to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. It's very expensive. Yeah. So, but you're selling mostly in the U.S. because you have like your partners have connections right. there with the distribution and logistics stuff. Right. And, you know, the market quite well. It's not like in general prices in the U.S. Are no, the price arbitrage. Probably a bit higher than in the uh, U.S. Well, I'll tell you why. The prices in the U.S. are higher for regulatory reasons. They're higher for, let me say, they're higher for two reasons. 
regulatory reasons, meaning the U.S. has a, a regulatory schema of the three tiers. So, which means that certainly in most states in the U.S., by the time it's in a retail shop, it's gone through an importer, it's gone through a straight distributor to the retailer. So there's three stops along the way. Each of those stops are independent companies. They each have to make money. And then finally, the consumer. So de facto makes wine more expensive in the U.S. The other reason is you have to again keep uh, in mind that because the U.S. is so spread out, that the fine wine market is also quite spread out. Obviously, it has some centers, New York, Miami, L.A., whatever. But, you know, there are a lot of people in, I don't want to disparage any smaller city, but in smaller cities who also enjoy fine wine, whether it's on, their, on the restaurant in a wine list or to buy at home, and their access is more limited. So because their access is more limited, prices go up. And people recognize that they can charge more. So prices go up for that reason. So it's a combination of the regulatory schema and the access that make wine prices higher. Again, I saw this with my own wine, right? My own wine, you can find in New York cheaper than you can find it for in Chicago or in L.A. Mm -hmm. Same exact wine store in New York, wine store in Chicago, wine store in L.A., and it's going to be higher. When I say higher, in percentage terms, it's actually quite dramatic. In dollar terms, maybe it'll be $30 here, $34 over there, and $36 over there. But in percentage terms, that's a lot. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, You talked about the example of your own wine, but can you maybe give a recent trade that you made of a specific wine, just as an example? For the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I prefer not to kind of open the kimono. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but, yeah. but uh, um, give us all insights. Yeah. <laughs> we, we write down, we write yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not. People can buy the no, same. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I mean, it's I, impossible you know, to copy because, yeah. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. I agree that it's very difficult to copy, but even so. But, you know, even. I'll just take some easy examples, right? You know, there's a lot of discussion. And I'm sure either you've discussed, I don't remember if it was on the first podcast I listened to, but I'm sure you'll discuss it. You know, there's a lot of discussion in the wine community for the past few years around uh, on Primeur and the wine futures, which has been was mainly Bordeaux, but now some others have joined in. So, you know, there, the wineries have gotten much smarter. Oh, you, you did discuss it. I remember you did discuss it a bit. The wineries have gotten much smarter over time, and they've uh, raised their prices, right? And so they're not leaving as much money on the table as they should, right? And it's the same thing, you know, when a company goes to IPO, should it be pricing itself, you know, at such a low point that there's an immediate pop? Well, if you do that, aren't you really basically doing a disservice to the existing shareholders because you're basically selling the stock too cheap because you're going to enjoy that pop? So very similarly, when wineries are releasing their wines, they have to think through the pricing. And they were underpricing their wines for a long time. They've gotten much smarter. And I think in the En Primeur, you can still make a small spread if you commit to a wine, you know, a year or a year and a half in advance. There's still a small spread to be made, usually. Um, where it gets much more interesting, let's say, take a, a nice winery like uh, Lagrange, right? A well-known 
a name. So, but a Lagrange 2015 is already a different story because you've had multiple reviews of the wine, not as a future, but two years after it was released, four years after it was released, six years after it was released. So now you have a very different trading scene for that wine. So if you take a wine like that, it will continue to get reviewed, which is kind of different than, again, my own wine. <laughs> my, my own wine might get reviewed when it first comes out, and I might send it to wine enthusiasts and wine spectator and so on. I don't usually send it to them again. In other words, they review my wine once, and that's about it. Whereas a lot of these wines, which are in the, call it investment grade framework, and there's at least a thousand wines that I would place in that framework, some of them multiple vintages, so it's really more than a thousand. Those wines will continue to oscillate based on the actual real product. In other words, some of them will continue to get even better, and some of them will get better at different rates, and so on and so forth. So in general, when you're looking at wine as an asset class, you need to take into account not only what's happening right now and not only what's happened historically, but saying, ah, do I think this vintage really will continue to get so much better uh, or improve so much, which will you know, create more demand, thus the price will go up? Do I think it'll get even higher reviews or even better reviews or whatever? With a short-term trading strategy, we're less focused on that. We're more focused on, okay, if I'm looking at Lagrange 2015, let me look at the most recent review of 2015 and say, ah, okay, nothing's going to come out in the next few months that's going to surprise me in a negative way, right? Meaning it's been recently reviewed, then I know I'm safe. Whereas you might see something that hasn't been reviewed for a long time and you might buy it while you're moving the wine. All of a sudden, somebody comes out with a review that says, oh, you know, oh, remember that 2005, you know, Las Pagodas or whatever? It, you know, forget about it. It's, you've missed its drinking window. So you have to be sensitive to that as well. Interesting. Yeah, I think the, what you mentioned is the the timing of getting a new review we saw that many reviewers like neil martin for example they rate their wines like every five or ten mm -hmm. years again mm -hmm. and when you're like buying the wines just before they release a new review you have a potential risk mm -hmm. that i mean as well a risk but as well a chance to for a higher price so it's like a, a trading opportunity right which opens up at this moment right um but i'm looking for again because i'm looking not from a long, long-term strategy point of view, but a three to six months at most strategy. So I'm trying to say, okay, did this wine just get reviewed or am I not expecting it to get reviewed <laughs> in the next year? So I'm in the clear. Yeah. So without getting into details on particular you know, trades, I can tell you that we have certain... We talked about seasonality, right? Particularly around champagnes. So if you time it right, you could find 
one of the leading, you know, champagne release, let's say a 2008 or whatever, which in the U.S., they might be paying 50% more, 100% more at retail for the same champagne than you would if you bought it in, uh, not even in, in Paris. I'm saying if you bought it in Geneva or you know, the jump over the ocean, particularly with some of those champagnes, creates a very high multiple, particularly in a specific season. Yeah. And for that reason, are you more focused like to buy wines which cost more, in average more like per case or per bottle? Because like the shipping price would be the same if you ship like Lagrange for 50 bucks or it's a Dom Perignon for 200 bucks. Right. So there's two issues. One, you have to again go back to what I originally said, which is the depth of the appetite. Uh, in other words, how strong is the demand for that particular wine? Which, in other words, how, how much value is there in that wine? Which there are some wines which, you know, most people would consider expensive, right? Maybe a few hundred euro for a bottle. But those are still not crazy. That's <laughs> amongst us, right? They're not crazy. Right? So when I say crazy, even crazy isn't crazy because it's all relative. But The community of people that's going to buy, you know, my favorite example is the community of people that's going to buy a Petrus 86 is small, right? Mm -hmm. How many people mm -hmm. out there are going to spend twelve, thirteen, fifteen thousand dollars a bottle? Mm -hmm. Not a lot. Mm -hmm. Whether it's to drink it or to collect it, mm -hmm. just not. There aren't a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so your community is much smaller. That so, whereas, if let's say we talk about uh, Cheval Blanc, right? Yeah. A recent vintage of Cheval Blanc probably will, you know, at retail, be six, seven hundred dollars a bottle. Not so bad. You know, is that all of a sudden you've opened up a much bigger community, which even to drink it would forget about collecting, just to drink it, they would say, oh, you know what, it's expensive, but I really enjoy it. I'm going to pamper myself, so on. At $12,000 a bottle, they may not say that. Now, are we dealing in wines which retail for $25? No, definitely not. Uh, $50? Probably not. $100? Yes. But you have to keep in mind that your most good to great California cabs are hundred dollars or more, mm. right? So I'm not talking about in a, at a restaurant, but just in retail. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the bar is relatively high anyway. So you're extremely right. Yeah. The shipping costs and the logistics around it and the handling and all of that is the same for a $25 bottle of wine as it is for a $250 bottle of wine. Mm. So better to deal with $250 bottle of wines if you think that the demand is there. Yeah. And the volume is there, so you're not stuck with it. Yeah. To be stuck with a bottle of uh, Petrus 86, just to use that as our easy example, to be stuck with a bottle of Petrus 86, it may make you feel good, and you could take a lot of pictures for it for Instagram. <laughs> and on the books of the fund, I can carry it you know, at a stated value, because that is basically its market value. But you know, I don't know how much it's really going to increase in price every year, number one. And number two... 
you know, if God forbid, out of the Silicon Valley Bank or whatever, there's a run on the bank, and I have to sell that bottle right now, there aren't that many people for me to sell it to. So I might have to end up selling it for far less than its potential value because I'm under pressure to sell it. Whereas if I have, you know, cases of wine which are more accessible, I'll have much more people to sell it to. I won't have as much price pressure. Very nice. Yeah, maybe a question to challenge your business idea, but you profit from the inefficiencies, right? I mean, in the last couple of years, the, those efficiencies, in my opinion, have gotten less because of the technology, because of the internet and all that stuff. Um, do you expect doing 15% profit per annum still in the future? Are you confident that you can achieve that? Or is the technology challenging you in that regard? So 10 years ago, thought that in 10 years from now, there was no way we would still be you know, doing business the way we were doing it 10 years ago. It's now 10 years later, and we're doing business exactly the same way we were doing it 10 years ago. So, and during COVID, everyone said, ooh, you know, everybody's you know, drinking more wine at home, and everybody's ordering wine, you know, ta-ta-ta-ta. The needle moved. And then post-COVID, it moved right back. And we're seeing that with a lot, not a lot, but we're seeing that with a number of online wine companies that either have gone bankrupt or, you know, greatly slowed down over the past year. So I think technologies are, are definitely important. I think logistics technologies will continue to improve. But in the end of the day, you know, the same way that very sadly we suffer from the vagaries of climate change. And, you know, my heart goes out to my fellow vintners, particularly in, in, in Bourgogne, but in Burgundy, but also now in Bordeaux, who have to radically change their farming practices because of climate change. I just read, it was funny, I never heard of Wisconsin making wine. And then two things happened within the span of two days. I had a visitor at my own winery who told me he worked for five years at a winery in Wisconsin. And I, showing my ignorance, didn't know there were any wineries in Wisconsin. And then last night I saw an article that uh, because of climate change issues in Wisconsin, because it was too hot and then there was a frost, they lost everything. There'll be no wine from this region in Wisconsin. And, you know, I remember seeing this firsthand when I was at a visit in, um, um, in uh, whew, I can't believe I'm blanking out right now, south of Bordeaux, um, whatever. Anyway, I'm blanking out right now. Uh, so turn. <laughs> and I went into the barrel room and there was nothing there. And I said to the vintner, who was a friend of a friend, yeah. and I said, you know, are you like racking? Where, where are all the barrels? He said, what do you mean? You don't know what happened last year? And then I'm remembering. And he said, one more year like that and I'll be bankrupt. Yeah. He said, I have no wine from last year. That's insane, yeah. So, you know, I think we have to be very sensitive to a lot of those issues, which, you know, I think technology plays a role there as well. I'm on the advisory board of a predictive analysis company, AI company that's focused on the wine world, trying to help wineries, you know, kind of predict vintages and so on. 
But, um, you know, technology can only do so much when it comes to the finished product of wine, which is one of the nice things about it. It comes from a very specific region at a very specific time. That's it, right? It's not like you can take Bordeaux. I know the Chinese thought they could do that, take Bordeaux and set it up in China. Um, but, you know, you can't take Bordeaux and, you know, move it to Mexico and now start producing Bordeaux wines in Mexico. No, you know, you might plant those varietals in Mexico, but then they'll be completely different. They'll be responding to the terroir of Mexico. So I think technology can only go so far. At the end of the day, it's a very physical product, which is time-bound and is a consumable product. When you take all those factors together, I think some of the issues that we face will remain for a long time. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we are quite uh, at the end of the podcast. Maybe at this time, at this point of the podcast, this episode, some listeners are convinced that investing or giving the money to Vino Ventures or especially to you uh, <laughs> might be a good idea. So can you maybe give just a, a rough overview over the key terms? Who can invest into Vino Ventures? How to invest? And yeah, how does it work? Sure. Sure. I mean, we're keeping the fund small, so we we're not really so relevant for large institutional investors. You know, I, I'm, I guess I said I've been involved in the tech world and I've been involved in venture firms and so on, and I know the way that the institutional money market works. So we're not really a vehicle uh, for them because we're going to keep our because we, we plan to stay small. So we're talking about mainly family offices, individuals. Where it goes to individuals, it gets really interesting because one of the things that we're developing is sort of a LP wine club. So anybody who's an LP in the fund, a limited partner in the fund, will gain access to buy some of our inventory at uh, wholesale prices for their own collection. So it's a fun kind of double enjoyment. You'll make good returns on your money, but you'll also have the chance to get uh, wines that you may be interested in at attractive pricing. So, you know, for family offices, uh, individuals, again, smaller investments in the sense of what we're used to thinking in terms of funds, it's in, in U.S. dollar terms, the minimum is uh, $100,000 to invest. The fees that we charge are standard fees in the industry, 2% management fee, 20% performance fee. And as I said, there's a rolling 120-day notice to take your money out, either some of it or all of it. And again, the reason why we can be so investor-friendly is because of our underlying strategy that we're turning around capital on an ongoing basis. So even, as I said, if there was a run on the bank, you know, it wouldn't be a happy day, but it wouldn't be a terrible day. <laughs> and uh, those are the basic terms. And uh, happy to talk to anyone who would be interested. But so uh, anyone from over the world can invest. It's restricted to the U.S. or something. No, no, no. We have the fund was structured as two different uh, vehicles, which uh, feed into the same pool of money. So there's a U.S.-based fund for U.S. investors, and then a, a BVI fund for non-U.S. investors. Okay, that's very nice. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of information. <laughs> uh, we got through. We got through wine producing, uh, being a wine enthusiast, winemaker, and uh, ending up being um, trading around the whole world, actually. Yeah, but it's I have to tell yeah. you, the fun doesn't you know get removed. I mean, even though we have to do, and I'll leave you guys with this, you know, even though we do want to make money at this, and we do have to talk about you know returns, and we have to handle all the what I said to mention before, 
the business side of wine. The nice thing is we're still, we're still talking about wine and we still enjoy it. And all of my partners enjoy it. So we're dealing with a product that we enjoy. We're dealing with a product that, for the most part, particularly the fine wines that we're involved in, bring joy and delight to people. So it's an industry I'm happy to be a part of. Yeah, totally. That's why we have a lot of drive as well, because uh, drinking wine makes fun. It's not just the, the money part and the business part, as you mentioned. It's more about fun too. Exactly. Maybe before we get something to hydrate ourselves again, Raymond and me, we are looking forward to drinking something. <laughs> <laughs> What should we pick out of our cellars if you can mention your favorite wine or something to Yeah, you know, well, so it makes pleasure to drink now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I'll give you two different things. I'll give you my favorite wine of my wines. So we focus on Mediterranean varieties at my winery. Uh, so Syrah, Carignan, which both of which you're probably familiar with. And then uh, something called Argaman, which is only grown here in Israel. And we have perfected, I'd like to say, uh, working with uh, Argaman, 2002 Our uh, Jezreel Argaman 2017 was rated 96 by Decanter. I was very happy about that. It was the first time we broke uh, through 95. <laughs> um, wow. That's impressive, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's gold, yeah. gold medal. Yeah, thank you. Gold medal winner last year at Decanter. Um, so, uh, so I can recommend uh, uh, Jezreel Argaman, which is actually available in, in Switzerland. We will put the link of uh, your winery into the description and sure, also the sure. link, God, the link of uh, Vino Ventures and also the link to the Swiss merchant who is selling the wine in, in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah he'd be, that'll make yeah. him happy. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, Jezreel so, Argaman, uh, I recommend because the time of year we're at, which is that we're you know well into spring, moving into summer, a very dark, complex, full-body wine, uh, but it's a Mediterranean wine, which means uh, that it's also uh, not heavy, and it, it goes very well with Mediterranean cuisine. That's on that side, and then on a diff very different uh, end of the spectrum, but for the same reason, you know, a lot of people go with rosé, and there are some rosés that I enjoy, but I personally... When it's kind of very hot day and during the day, especially, I would I go with a very very nicely chilled Sauvignon Blanc. And to try Sauvignon Blancs from different regions of the world, you really get a nice sense of how a variety like that, planted in different terroirs, behaves. You'll get you know kind of a different character, but there is some consistency to it. But a very crisp one and a finer producer that can make a really crisp Sauvignon Blanc for a nice summer day. Really nice. Jacob was, was really, really awesome to talk to you. And um, yeah, we're, we're at the end and, and hopefully we will still get in touch and uh, for sure, for and, sure. Uh, talk some time again. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you liked our first episode, please like, rate and share our podcast with people who love to drink and buy wine. Your hosts... Sharon Huber and Remo Di Marco welcome you soon to the next episode of the Wine Investment Podcast. And as always, you better buy wine because you can't drink stocks. Mm -hmm.